Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 339, a part two of my conversation with the creator of the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, retired principal percussionist of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, performer, educator, composer, and publisher, Rainer Carroll. We'll get to him shortly. We are back from our break and ready to move forward with the conclusion of the semester. Spring break last week was a much-needed time off, and my wife and I had a good friend visit us from out of town and allowed us to travel to St. Louis to enjoy that city, which included exploring the City Museum, one of the greatest and most bizarre museums that exists in this country, as well as go see the free St. Louis Zoo, which was great to visit again, and eat at Lorenzo's Trattoria, a fabulous Italian restaurant on the hill in St. Louis. Make sure you visit your local towns and cities and enjoy. And now we get back to our conversation with Rainer Carroll. Last week, I presented part one of our chat, which I hope you've had a chance to listen to. In that episode, Rainer talked about his organization, the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, or ABOP, writing his book and working with composers, and winning the Los Angeles Phil job and the audition process in general. This week in part two, we talk about Rainer's background in Los Angeles, studying with Mitchell Peters at CSU Los Angeles, his interest and experience with West African drumming, and our usual final segment. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on March 9th, 2023, and it begins right now. You alluded to this a little bit, but we're, I want to back up. So where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore. Well, I should say I was born in Baltimore. That's where basically all my brothers and sisters, we were all born there. And my dad, we were all born in the same hospital, Johns Hopkins Hospital, Baltimore. I'm the youngest of five. But when I was four years old, my dad got a promotion with the American Tobacco Company and said, we want you to be our black, well, our black representative in Southern California. Dad was like, okay, when's the flight? Ready to go. <laughs> tonight? Oh. I could Because I can make it tonight happen. Pack up, pack up the kids, who, whatever, and we're yeah. going to L.A. It was like a big deal. I mean, I remember that as being four and flying out here and looking. When we're landing, I could remember seeing the old oil pumps that are still here near the La Cienega area. It's like, what a different thing. And there is the ocean. There is the mountain. And so it was a big deal. So I grew up here. Born in Baltimore, but I grew up here, went to school here, and then uh, studied with Mitch Peters at Cal State LA. So I'm a Southern California boy. And it was just my dream to audition and play for an orchestra right here in town. Just amazing. That's awesome. It worked out that way. You alluded to kind of having uh, a lot of music in the house, but did you, were any, you have any family members that were in the arts? Not, not professionally. Okay. My oldest brother was the listener. He had the record collection. He was a hi-fi fanatic, you know, or what's the word? I forget the word for hi-fi. Uh, I can't think of There's a term for that. Mm. Over and above. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. That's the proper word. My <laughs> brother, who has since passed away, uh, he was an audiophile. Love him forever because 
you know, he would play all these things too. Again, it, it came from my dad, but you know, because he liked the the recreating the recorded sound as as clearly and cleanly as possible. So I thank him for buying all the expensive speakers and the the, the tube amps and all that because he was so into that the turntable that had to be up and suspended and it, it didn't drop down automatically. You had to lift the stylus up and mm-hmm. set it down because if it did it automatically it it made too much noise and, you know, all those things. So that was my oldest brother. Then I have a middle brother who is just an amazing musician, but he's just not professional. He, he doesn't do it as his gig. He plays guitar, keyboards, he sings. He's amazing, amazing music. So that's the makeup. I have two sisters that didn't go into music, thank goodness. <laughs> but but it was, we were just a musical family. There was a piano in the house and, you know, we'd play and sing and whatever. It just, music was always there. And people ask me about drums, how to get started. I, I didn't, it was just the drums chose me. It was just, there was no option. There was just something about the sound of a drum or a percussion instrument that just drew me there. It was always, it's always been in me. So I had no choice. This was my passion that I had to pursue. And it just worked out that way. Did you have a drum kit to begin? How did you, where was your entrance into percussion? Yeah, the first was a snare drum, which would have been one of those that you buy at the corner drugstore, Mm -hmm. you know, for like probably then it was, I don't know, 10 bucks maybe so that would have been first and then at some point after that it was a drum kit you know again a japanese or chinese probably at that time it was a japanese made drum kit uh which you know i wish i still had it as in the first drum kit but no it's long gone (laughs) and my brother my middle brother that i mentioned that plays guitar keyboards he had a, a, a garage band so to speak then and, you know, drummers being drummers, often the drummer would flake out and not show up. So, hey, Raynor, we need you. <laughs> and, you know, my brother's four years older than me and all the guys were that age and older. So it was a little intimidating, but I think that helped that they're all better than me. But that's that was one of my starts is playing playing with older guys, uh, you know, top 40 music of the time, you know, whether it was Cream, you know, uh, Sunshine of your love and et cetera, et cetera. It's just <laughs> that brings back memory. And I always felt I was not adequate because I was, I was the kid. You know, they were like high school. I was like junior high. And, you know, they're so far ahead of me. And after that, after that, after they graduated from high school, I was in high school and I'd be in the ninth grade, like 15. And we go do these battle of bands and all these guys in their 20s. And here is this. Yeah, so whatever. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe that's what drove me to classical music. <laughs> you know, I felt more at home there. You yeah. know, whether it was because through your your older brother, or whether it was through you know what was interesting you. What was what were your favorite things to play drum set wise back in those days? Your wow. favorite, not what they told you to play. Oh, it, yeah, I don't think it mattered. I just like, <laughs> like I said, being a drummer, you just like playing the drums. So it yeah. didn't matter. It, you know, we did Chicago, mm-hmm. all, all the top 40 stuff of the time. Some R&B, um, Santana, all of that stuff was great. You know, it was all a learning experience for me, you know, as it was for them, but at a different level, I thought. 
So yeah, all that stuff was great to play. When do you decide or realize that maybe the 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 classical route is what is more up your alley? Yeah, I don't remember the exact the exact time, the exact thing, but I do remember being turned on to it at cer- at a certain point beyond the just the regular day to day and I can remember listening to a classical station here in LA and of course it's the same as it is for a lot of percussionists or former drum set players that became percussionists hearing the Stravinsky Rite of Spring the first time I have no words. I still have no words for that experience. I was, you know, maybe 16 years old, whatever, maybe 15. I was like, what was that? Mm -hmm. I have to go out, get a recording of which I did and, you know, played it, played it, played it. And specifically, it was Michael Tilson Thomas and the Boston Symphony with Vic Firth, Vic Firth on timpani, et cetera, et cetera. It just, hearing that piece just blew me away. And if I had been attracted to classical music before, that sealed it. That was just it. It's just, I'd never heard anything that used percussion, specifically timpani and the bass drum in such in such a way that was so different, so unique, but yet so right. It's like, you know, these explosions of sounds of, with the sforzandos of the timpani and the bass drum and how the orchestra played off of that. You know, it's like having a drum set play in the orchestra, but not really. But, you know, it just it, it was just it just went inside of my soul, you know, and I can remember at a certain point after the getting after getting the recording going to a local music score store, ordering the score, getting the score, and it's like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> you know, from the first page where it's the bassoon solo, it's like... Oh, and I, it's so I, high up in their register. Yeah, but, you know, and seeing this different clef, and, yeah. you know, and then just the <laughs> percussion, the timpani part, looking through at the end of the first half, the six four and then the the dance of the earth for the bass drum plip, triplets and then in the second half the 11 four, what the hell who writes 11 four and then the ensuing five eight seven eight and then don't even start with the end with the two sixteen three six how the hell do you count this <laughs> yeah. let alone play it yeah. You know, I was just totally which I still am after playing it I don't know how many times with the Philharmonic, because it was one of Essa Pekasalans, our music director, former music director. That was one of his part of his repertoire that yeah. we did often, whether it was here or touring with it. We did it many times. And you know, I it's just one of those pieces that just it's still I still hear something different every time and still amazed at the so far ahead writing. It's just so progressive. And to think it's over 100 years old now. And I always think, you know, I, I said earlier that I was the first to do the vibraphone part for the Adam City Noir. It's like, man, what did the first timpanist think when he saw that part? Okay. You know, because the standard at that time, you know, may have been a Wagner symphony, a Tchaikovsky symphony, or, 
you know, or right. maybe a Mahler symphony, but to see something like this was just over, over and beyond that. So, yeah, yeah, that that's what did it for me. That's the moment that I was absolutely hooked and brought in. Oh, that's that's great. It it is a piece that's still even a hundred years on. It it's still pretty shocking, which is a stunning, which is a wild thing to say, but it, it really is. Yeah, yeah, and. Adding to that story a little bit and thinking of ABOP and what we're trying to do with providing uh, instruments, et cetera, for our, our protégés, a very, very important moment for me, a crucial moment in my development way back when I was in high school, just after this time that I had gotten the score, and it may be that very summer, uh, from my junior year going to into my senior year. It could have been sophomore into junior, whatever. But, uh, you know, we had a summer break, as all high schools do. And I asked the band director, you know, timpani are not being used. Could I bring these home? <laughs> not four drums, but five, including a piccolo. Oh, wow. Because, wow. because I knew the Rite of Spring had five timpani in it, for mm -hmm. five drums. And the band director, bless his heart, John Work, said, yeah, sure. So my buddy, trumpet player, had a pickup. We loaded, at the end of school, we loaded all five drums, drove them to my house. And again... You, you, got, him, you got it on one trip? Yeah, yeah. Wow. He had a big, he had a big it was a pickup without a shell. I'd never do that now. I'd never recommend it to my students. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it was five Ludwig balance action pedal drums. And what I was going to say is got him home. And here is, is, again, is a very crucial part that I'm so fortunate with. I went to my parents. Actually, I probably did this before, I hope, I, before I got him to the house. It said, I like to bring timpani home for the summer. Is that okay? Yeah, sure, whatever. You know, because they'd had my middle brother, they'd had the band practicing at the house. Like, what yeah. worse could it be? We have yeah. five timpani, whatever. So we pull up, we load, unload them, and we put them in my living room. <laughs> you know, it was a big house because it's a big family, five kids. Yeah. So there was room. But I remember that having access to not two, but five timpani the entire summer. And I practiced mm -hmm. and I wrote out as best I could at that time. <laughs> the timpani part to the right of spring and i did my best to play it and but what i have my point of this whole story is that i had access for an unlimited time as in three months which is unheard of in high school to a major instrument which was crucial in my development having those instruments there daily where i could practice you know with within reason every day made a huge difference and one thing I stay, say to, or I, I've, I've said to students before is, who's your best friend? And they're like, what? What's, where's this coming from? Why are you at? I'm like, well, who's your best friend? And they'll say, okay, you know, my, my little brother or this friend that my colleague here at school. I'm like, great. You know who my best friend was at a certain point? Timpani. I spent so much time with those drums. They spent so much time with me going all over them, taking the heads off, putting it on, learning how they work, that we became the best friends. I knew what I could do with those. I knew how far to push that pedal down to get whatever note, how far to let up. I knew what, how to get the resonance from the head 
And that's what I recommend you do. Spend so much time with that snare drum. Spend, sm spend so much time with that marimba that you know how it works. You know how to get that sound. You develop that. And it just takes time. And that's the hardest thing. I can't tell you you have to spend six months doing this or X amount of hours. It's different for everybody. You know, for me, you know, there was one point later in, in when my first year at Cal State LA where I was practicing in the practice room late one night, I would say it's eight or nine o'clock. Most of the students were gone, whatever, and I was just playing. And there was that ah moment. I will never forget it. It's all of a sudden, everything, it's like I it's an out-of-body experience. Mm -hmm. And yeah. these things really happen. I mean, it's amazing. Where I was just, my hands are moving. I wasn't thinking. Because I think I had spent so many hours before getting to that point where it finally, we finally clicked. We were finally one. And that's the thing. And, you know, I think for some students, the sad part, or for some musicians, they never get to that point for whatever reasons. Yeah, It's not enough hours, or maybe they just don't have that capability of that connection. But for those that do, it's it's that glorious feeling of, okay, I've got this figured out and I can just play the instrument now, you know? Yeah. It's a wonderful story. That's that's awesome. When you were in high school, were you taking private lessons? No. Okay. No, I was a late bloomer. I got my first lessons, uh, I would say, just about uh, the beginning of middle school where I went to the local boys club and wanted to play. So I got my first drum lessons as in how to hold the sticks, how to play a stroke from the boys club band director at the time for that. And as I did that, as I recall, I played in the beginning band in seventh grade in middle school. So that kind of coincided at the same time where the beginning band in school was a group, obviously a group situation. Everyone was new. The clarinets, the trumpets, the sounds that came out of that room were pretty, pretty amazing in a bad way. But what <laughs> I, one thing I do remember from that, because, you know, the, the school here in Pasadena didn't have the funding for that we, we could each have a practice pad. So what the the band director did was he set up maybe three or four chairs and he laid this long piece of wood on the chairs. And we sat in our chairs and we played on this wood. So that's how he dealt with seven beginning drummers. <laughs> and it worked. It, it worked for me, you know. And of course, there was a snare and bass drum after we learned some basic technique and how to read music first that we graduated to that. But but that was my beginning with uh, private lessons was in the uh, boys club band, private lessons there, and then doing the group lessons in the beginning band in seventh grade. That's That was my start. But after I basically progressed in uh, the boys club band, I played in the ensemble and didn't get any more lessons and played in the ensembles in the school. So I, I didn't have any more lessons. It wasn't until senior in high school, the band director at Cal State LA did an all city band with Pasadena. 
I rehearsed and played, and the band director from Cal State LA, you know, kind of made a note of me, came up to me and uh, offered me a full scholarship to Cal State LA. And that's what ended up happening. I didn't play an audition, just on his recommendation. And he said, you have to come to Cal State LA. You'll study with Mitchell Peters, principal percussion timpani with the LA Phil. Where else could you go? If you want to do this, this is the place. And he was right. He was right. And that's that's when I really started studying seriously, you know, as in I had a lot of mallets to do because I'd really not, never studied mallets in, prior to that. You know, timpani I could do, snare drum I could do, but, but any, you know, I had all the things to do, but it was mainly getting an idea because again, and I, I point back to ABOP is that access to the instruments was 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 difficult when you're in high school and you know limited funding from the school and limited you know limited funding in, in within my family they can only buy but so much stuff and sure. I had a drum set was thankful for that and I brought home a set of timpani one summer so yeah it, it that's when I really got my first lessons with Mitch Peters uh, as a freshman in in the university. What was the expectation in terms of either equipment? I mean, this is, and I'm curious about this because of kind of when this is. Was there an expectation about equipment, music? Like, what what was, did he, was that laid out right at the beginning? Or was there a, like, a, you will eventually acquire all these things as we, as you continue your education? Yeah, eventually acquire depends on, you know, what you do, you know, how, how hard you practice. So, sure. It was understood from the beginning, and there were the facilities there at the time were fine for the studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in, there were probably at, if I recall, maybe eight percussion majors, eight or nine, maybe ten, and we had enough practice rooms, we had enough instruments, we had enough berimbas, we had enough sets of timpani, where it was not a problem. Like I've uh, encountered. And myself teaching at some of the universities, there isn't enough. Because again, I think percussion has really blossomed and developed over the years. And there's more players going to schools and to study, which is a good thing. But, you know, some of the universities, they have a problem in the funding and keeping up and providing, number one, the space. Yeah. You you know, it's it's such a different animal than a trumpet player or a flute player, they can practice, you know, more or less. I, I know there are exceptions in pretty much any old practice room. <laughs> or they can find the band room open and they'll just go and practice. But for us, we have these huge instruments that, you know, <laughs> limited mobility. And, you know, so they have to have enough dedicated space for us. And then the instruments, because now if you've got a studio of 12, 14, 15, you can't get by with two or one five octave marimba and then one four octave marimba, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to, if you're pushing your, your, your students, you've got to, they've got to push you and say, okay, I'll practice more, but I'm signed up on this room for just one hour every other day. And this is all I can get. And I barely get an hour. Someone's banging on the door to get into the instrument. So it works both ways. They've got to have excellent Again, if they're focusing on symphonic, they've got to have excellent snare drums. I mean, it makes a big difference in your audition. They've got to have good cymbals, et cetera. All of this is a part of a, a good, well-rounded studio. So 
it's it's a difficult thing, but that's what it takes. I, I you know, you ask players that get to that point, they can say whether they had it at school or they made it their their point to to access and, and or acquire instruments through the years, it happens. It's necessary. You go to these auditions, pretty much everyone brings their piccolo snare drum. Pretty much. Uh, when you're finishing up, what are some of the pieces of music that you're playing as like senior recital or anything related to that at that particular time? <laughs> it's such a long time ago. I know. I know. <laughs> oh my gosh! Was, now, was did Mitchell have was his pieces around yet? His, oh, like, oh yes. Stuff and yes, definitely. Thing? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, that was more, I would say, Mitch's pieces we did more prior to your senior recital. If you're speaking of senior recital specifically, uh, you know, we did all of his timpani of the mallet pieces, the Sonata Allegro and the Yellow After the Rain. All that was earlier. It's too long ago. It's just... <laughs> Fair enough. And, and or I would say, and I use this as a better excuse, I've played so much more music since then. Sure that it's just it's a blur it really is even my even thinking of the days back then it's just it seems like it was a hundred years ago uh but my buddies now a few of them have passed away from then it's like wow time is going by you know so i'm sorry i can't okay. give you these specifics but uh, also re re i should say that i was also a, i was dual major mm -hmm. uh performance and composition Oh, all right. Uh, so I, because I, I just, like I said, for whether it was the rite of spring, I just like writing out music and the art of notation and just this whole thing. I love, I love printing a clean page of legible music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nothing worse for me. And some, some players, it doesn't bother them one bit, but I, I don't like getting a page or a, any music that's, got all of these markings and all of these instructions that don't mean anything to me. I liked having a nice clean page. And that's one thing I was very fortunate with, with the LA Phil, the, the library staff, you know, often I take the parts into them and could you please clean these up and make a new set for us? Oh, sure. No problem. And they'd always do it. And, and, you know, we'd have a set for, you know, every, all the major pieces, we have our own set of music. And so I don't have to remark them every time and assign for this player. And it, again, as a principal percussion, things like that save you a lot of time. And it helps in the playing already because you can already look at the part and I'll have a diagram already made up for the setup and you know what mallets you need and blah, blah, blah. It just simplifies everything. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it would, with that group with being with la phil for so long did you were there times when music would be handed out and you'd be like i don't remember this piece and then it's clearly your handwriting on it you're like yeah. i oh, guess i guess i did that yeah yeah that happened a few times not a lot but yeah yeah don't remember this one at all but okay let's do it <laughs> <laughs> that's my a and d and yep that's the <laughs> yeah yep exactly yep those those things happen too yeah yeah all right. Well, uh, I finish up with a segment called Random Ask Questions. So first question, uh, first couple are not random, but uh, my first question is, what's an issue in either percussion education or percussion performance that most gets under your skin or drives you the most nuts? I, I think it's probably what I touched on earlier with focus. 
mm. in education. I, I think it's it's difficult for the younger generation, and they have to speak up and tell me I'm wrong or I'm right or no, this is the issue. But what this is what I see is that the focus is not there in general. You know, there are those students or there are those that I believe they do have that level. But I think overall, what's different from whether it's 20 years ago or 40 years ago is that focus, being able to tune in and whether it's practicing or focusing during your lesson. Because I, I can see their minds going different directions, even when they're taking their lesson. And I snap, come on, <laughs> be present, please. <laughs> you know, this is for you, not for me. Right. Uh, but that that's what I would say. Yeah, that would be my first response is focus in, in that. I think I find the same thing. I, I know it's I because I use my metronome. I use my phone for like the, some of the, a lot of the things I do. Yeah. Um, and I know that I have to I frequently have to have to put it on airplane so that the text messages don't come in. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I want to, I know you alluded to this at the very beginning, but if you want to go a little further on this um, and my framing on this is being a percussionist who is also African-American, the floor is yours. A very unique, but special situation that I was, that I led myself to be in, you know, because no one, no one. No one's responsible for me doing this, that. I am always responsible for my for my actions. Very fortunate. And I will always say I'm not lucky because I, I think or I know being me going through what I went through, as in the long hours of practice and work, it, it wasn't luck. I, I had a definite goal in mind. And I worked hard towards it, and I did the certain things that I was told to do. And I, I was fortunate to be where I was, and with very few that are African American, you know. And I, I give props again. I'm not trying to turn this into something different, but I give props to my parents for doing what they, what I needed to do. I wouldn't say it's what they needed to do, but it's what I needed. They gave me just enough enough encouragement. They put me in the right places, you know, and they drove me to the right places as in driving me to the uh, boys club and doing this and enrolling me in this and and being supportive, going to the concerts and where this was different in the African-American community, as in, you know, you didn't typically have a son or daughter in classical music, maybe piano, maybe violin, uh, but percussion was very different. I always say being a black percussionist on stage is the minority of the minority of the minority, et cetera, because choosing classical music is not the most common path for a musician. It's more into the pop, whatever. Being a percussionist itself is a minority of a hundred piece orchestra. There's maybe four or five. And then being black in an orchestra and uh, classical music is a minority of that. So a lot of things had to go the right way. And, you know, I'm blessed. Always say that, you know, I worked hard, but I'm blessed to have the things happen that weren't luck, but things fell together. People saw in me something. 
And I'm very glad for that and fortunate for that to have that, that they pushed me on and encouraged me, including my parents, as my as I said. And I was able to do what I do. And I feel a responsibility now that I have a lot more time <laughs> than I did with the orchestra to do what I can for Black percussionists. And, and I shouldn't just say, that's what ABOP is about, but obviously I've taught for many years and the majority of my students are non-Black. So, you know, and I, I hope that the, the students I've had will say that they've had a very fruitful, joyful relationship with what we've done together. So it's not that I'm just promoting, but that is my focus now. And I feel I can do that best, but I, I do actually still have students of other color also here at the house. But to go back to Black percussionists, uh, very fortunate and very blessed and willing to do whatever it takes to have others join this ride. And I, I heard one analogy some time ago, I forgot from whom, but it's like I had the privilege to get on the elevator at the bottom floor. <laughs> And then the elevator went up, it stopped at each floor, and I learned what I learned. I got back and I reached the top. Now it's my turn to get on that elevator, go back down to the bottom, and take a few young people's hands. And okay, we're in the basement. <laughs> we're not even at the first floor. When you get to the first floor, the door is going to open, and this is what you're going to need to do. Then when we get to the second floor, et cetera, et cetera, and then hopefully, you know, They'll go where they'll go. Hopefully they will have an experience that fulfills them the way I did. That's my goal. Whether they make it to floor one, two, three, four, whatever. That's all I can do. And that's that's me. That's me now. No, that's wonderful. Not on a related point to the my original question, but to your hard work question, which is obviously very much apparent, um, you know, with the amount of effort you you put in to get to where you are when you were preparing and you had that when we talked about it very early about um getting ready for that audition and mitch peters being like no no you can you you need to go for this did you and you were preparing for that did you like because it's obviously the orchestral type of percussion um practice is a very different style um did you like doing that specific detail level of practice on on those small things yes because it's what i need what i had to do sure. now the bottom line to take it in a different way is no i'd rather just be playing you sure. know <laughs> yeah i think yeah. as all of us we'd rather just be playing music i mean not all of us some of us want to compose but whatever right. but the you know the ideal thing is not to be learning scales, arpeggios, the rudiments. And I mean, there's fun in that. And there should be some fun in the journey of getting there. But that's what we do to reach that end point, which, you know, for playing in an orchestra is the concerts every week, you know, the rehearsals and the concerts. And even then, it's 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 not even the rehearsals. Again, that can be a joyful thing too, but it's the end product of the concerts where there's an there's an audience that is hopefully picking up on our joy of music and sharing that with them. That's the bottom line. So that's what we really aim for. 
So, you know, the day-to-day practice is just, it's like, this is what I learned again from my, from my folks from when I was very young. You know, your job is every week you go out and you sweep the yard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my job. I learn. I just have to do it. I can't complain. Or I can. I can complain, sure. say I don't feel well. The bottom line is I need to get my butt out and clean up the yard. Right. And what's the end? The end result is we, you know, we have a more beautiful house or whatever, whatever, or do your laundry, whatever. That's the end product. But I learned the discipline through that, which applied to music, where when I'm told I just need to practice this stuff, I don't think twice about it. I do it because that's the necessary thing. I've been told, I've been given the reason, I go through those steps and I realize it's not the funnest part, but you know, it's gonna pay off. It's gonna pay off if I do it and I do it right the way I was asked to be told. Great. I realized we hadn't gotten to this yet and I wanna make sure I ask about your background in West African drumming and how and where that, began and and the ways that that developed for you yeah well it it it's always been in we in me i've always been interested but just you know being in the fill it it really does take up a lot of time um you know we have typically like four rehearsals every week three or four concerts then the next week it's the new set and etc and at the bowl the hollywood bowl we'll have three or four rehearsals but three two, three programs. So we're going through a lot of music. There's not a lot of downtime. Now, I'm not saying that to be negative. I loved it. But what it does, it doesn't allow you a lot of time. You do have time, you know. But with the Philharmonic, I was not able to pursue that for me comfortably until I had my sabbatical, my first sabbatical, which, you know, I had time to myself to relax, get away from classical. And that's when I started studying the West African drumming. And I haven't made a trip to West Africa yet, but I've studied with the guys here that are in town. And like I mentioned earlier, Mama De Keita was one of those that went through LA quite a bit and didn't live too far from here. And I, I you know, got myself first a Remo djembe and then a wooden djembe. And it just bonded, again, like I talked about instrument, just spending enough time with it where I could eventually play or enunciate the language of the djembe cleanly. You, you could definitely hear a bass, a tone, and a slap. It wasn't all just jumbled together. So I could begin speaking the language and that inspired me to keep going. And like I said, I brought friends and invited others to come to the house. And we used to do it on a regular basis, basically every week during the summer. I'd have a Sunday evening session where we would go over specific rhythms with the dununs, the djembe's, the shakere, et cetera, and recreate these these rhythms. It it's it it's still it just it. It just is a different part of me. It it uses a different part of my brain, aside from the classical, where you start at the beginning and you read through. This is all in your head now. This is all orally what you hear, which is great. I mean, I also written as a cheat sheet, wrote all the rhythms down. Mm-hmm. Those because a f- few of the percussionists or the the people that came to or that would come to workshops would ask, what does that look like? So I, I'd pull out the music, say, 
Oh, that's where the downbeat is. That's because, you know, in West African music, there is no downbeat as such. It just kind of flows. So that's where I got hooked in, bought books, listened to videos, do all those things and played or or play as much as I possibly can. And like I say, I haven't done it in a while and I can't get enough of it. Yeah. Well, and you have to get used to the layers of just percussion sound. <laughs> yes. 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 It's a, it's a great thing. I often say and you know, I I don't know if this is fair, but I compare some of these rhythms of the West African drumming where there's, you know, three or four djembe players, basically two or three playing a couple of different rhythms and the lead djembe plays the solo off of the dancer and then there's three denumbas. Mm-hmm. You know, the dunun, the songban, the kinkini, you put all that together and with all of the individual parts together, it's for me like a Bach fugue or an invention where he's got these layers of sound that they're all beautiful by themselves, but you put them together and it's just this other other amazing thing and so that that's what i compare it to I, I think that's because i'm classically trained that the first thing i go to is bach is hey this is just like bach it's just without the pitches you know it's just all the rhythms and it's just amazing how in the dunes you know the bass drums they are the melody and if you change one of those slightly it becomes a completely different rhythm you know has a different feel and everything it's just it's it's like listening to the rite of spring and those rhythms and trying to figure out where is it fall where is the downbeat it's just it's just amazing well i i i am now going to use that analogy <laughs> i will i will credit you for, oh, don't for, don't for, for, don't for, <laughs> don't credit you you don't want the credit for oh, well, man, i don't know it's the, just it's just it's just me it might not be right i want it to be right you know the correct oh, okay. way but but yeah, that's what Mama Day would say. He he would often say, take these rhythms, go play them. He said, arrange them, change them, and whatever, whatever feel. He was into spreading the culture, and that's what it's all about, you know. Right. So yes, you can give me some credit. All right. I'll take some. <laughs> all right, good. Thank you. I would like to credit the people who come up with these ideas. Uh no, I love that. And and that's also him kind of Mama kind of uh talking about the spreading i mean that's how an oral language continues is that yes it's passed down but it's also passed down with the new information right to go to a new person yeah because traditionally it was not written down right it was passed down orally as you mentioned and you know now with some people and i wouldn't say me but you know he's got a few books out with it notated not exactly traditionally classically but pretty close to that so that there is a written tradition that now can be observed. The thing is, with anybody that looks at this notation, it's not exact. Right. You know, it's just like we talk about feel and jazz and whatever, or in pop music, same thing with this, or more so with this, because he would even say, now I'm going to give you this rhythm that's it's not really duple and it's not really triple, you know, it's, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. You know, we experienced the same thing. 
And, you know, he would give us this rhythm that was kind of this and kind of that. But he even said, you know, it doesn't fit this structure. But that's the way they learned. And, and they taught. They didn't learn by going to a school. They learned by observing and hearing and following and asking questions. And, you know, and I think we've lost a part of that. Because I think a part of that is great in our classical training too, the classical part of improvisation and just being able to be free with your instrument and not so restricted with just what a composer wrote, you know. So maybe oh, that's another podcast, Pete. I don't want to <laughs> track you on too far. <laughs> no, this is awesome. I mean, okay, perfect example of exactly what you talked about, particularly about you having a notation, but it not being exact. Uh, yeah. In my one of my oral skills classes, we were doing syncopation. It was like that was the unit, right. and I played. Um, and I had them try to notate the four measures of Deo. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I told them, which, I'm like, which, which technically, I, I, I have to stop. Yeah, please. technically, my mother is Jamaican. Uh huh. It is a Jamaican folk song, yeah. and it is technically the banana, banana boat, boat song. song. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, no, that's good. Thank you for the, I appreciate the, no, the no problem. Yes. I had them, I, I told them, I was like, I'm, I know what you're going to hear. You're not going to be able to completely accurately <laughs> notate because right. it's, it's in the middle. It's like, yeah. it's not straight eighths and it's not triplets. Right. It's somewhere in the <laughs> so I get like that lesson is like like right in my brain right now. So yeah, yeah. Well, that's what music is. It's yeah. not it's not exactly what's written right. always. Maybe it feel a few times it is, but it can be we have to bring our human aspect to to it. And yeah. you know, that's another thing. Again, I don't want to go off far, but it's not the worst thing in an audition or any time to play a wrong note. Yeah. Uh, I once went up to Esapeka and apologized for missing something or playing. He said, yeah, no big deal. We're not machines. I'm like, oh, my God. If he says it to me, I'm good. Okay. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but no, I think, you know, we worry about that. We yeah. do want to strive for that per- for that perfection. But in essence, you know. It's rarely that somebody plays everything exactly the way they wanted it, you know. And again, that's moving towards the machine as opposed to being more human. And it's okay. It's okay if you missed one note. It's okay if your rough didn't come out quite as clean. You know, it's something to work on. But, you know, enjoy what you're doing. You know, enjoy it now. (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. (laughs) Okay, so I have I have more questions that are more oh, that are, okay. are gonna go away from the percussion side. Just other okay. all right. This is where the random stuff's gonna happen. Sure. Okay. Has anyone ever nailed an impression of you? And if so, how'd they do it? Well, I would take it back to percussion. <laughs> yeah, because it's such a part of my life, but maybe a student has. No, no, I've never witnessed that. <laughs> Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> well, again, not that it doesn't exist or it didn't happen, but I, I didn't see it. Okay. okay. Fair enough. <laughs> All right. What's the most impractical item of clothing you own? Well, I, I don't know. I, I've i got a pair of hiking boots that I haven't used in years, so I don't know. When my wife and I took my wife to Sedona for her birthday, that's that's why I wasn't here last week. We couldn't oh. talk. Um yeah. 
and we went on a hike and I didn't have my boots. So they're very impractical. They they haven't been used. So I, that's the best I could come up with. I'm that's sorry. good. That's all right. That's right. <laughs> all right. What's what's a great movie and what's a terrible movie? Great movie. There's a lot of really good movies. It's like to say one, it's like I'd be leaving out another. <laughs> a recent movie would be last year's Academy Award winner, The Coda. Oh, yeah. I I was just thrilled with that because it had for me, it had a little bit of everything, you know, with a minority, as in those that are deaf, they're not able to speak. Um, Musicians were a minority. And, you know, she is a singer and she was one of she was torn between staying at home and getting out of the 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 fishing village, et cetera, and auditioning out of school. It just touched a lot of things in me. That made me very, and uh, well, they made me very connected with it. And, you know, it, it was so well done, well acted, great writing, uh, really bad. Oh, man. Do you know the sci-fi Plan 9 from Outer Space? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think there needs to be any discussion with that. That was pretty bad. Yeah. But... It's good if you want a good laugh, you know, sure. as in on how bad it is. Yeah. You know? So yeah. that's that's the one that comes to mind. It's an old, old movie, I guess from the early 60s or something. And yeah, what's his name? Ed Wood had no budget and he made this sci-fi and it was just awful. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, was it Boris Karloff was in yeah. it? Uh, and, you know, he was at the end of his career and he needed to work. And, it, oh, it was just, I think he passed away halfway through oh, it. No, no, it's Bella Lugosi. Bella Lugosi, right. And he passed away halfway through it. So the second half of the movie, he's all, the actor who played him always covers his face yeah, so right. that you don't see it's not him. It was bad. It was bad. <laughs> but I love it. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. What about, what's a favorite book? Well, you know. My the I th- I think it's the most recent which I've read, which is a little over a year ago, which I've read through completely, and that's Ravi Shankar's autobiography. Oh, actually, it's not an autobiography; it's a biography. Mm-hmm. Thick book. I, it's got to be six, seven hundred pages. But I was just thrilled from page one on such an icon, such an amazing musician, and to learn about his story from beginning to end was just incredible. Um, I had an opportunity or if he was to solo with us uh, to do one of his uh, sitar concertos um, at the Philharmonic, but unfortunately it was towards the end of his life and he was ill and not able to do it. And I'm very sorry for that, but his, this book is just amazing about his story, his journey you know, and he's at the top of, I would say, not just his field of sitar, et cetera, but of a, being a musician and being a human being. So highly recommend that book. That was the most incredible read that I've had of recent years. Awesome. No, I Very inspiring. Put that on the list. That sounds yeah. great. Yeah. All right. You're in Southern California. Are you, do you have sports fandom? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Yeah. So you're gonna ask me. Who, who, so who, which? Well, I mean, yeah, yes. Who? What, like, or which sport is like the most affected by this sports fandom, or is it all, everything? No, it it probably used to be everything before I got serious with music. 
But yeah. once music took over, everything else had to be put aside. Sure. But I am a huge L.A. Rams fan. Oh. So obviously I was in heaven a year ago. Mm-hmm. Not so much now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, for me, it was the timing because in the Phil, I went in, in my 33 years, I probably went to four games. Mm. But as soon as I retired, I got season tickets and my wife and I, we go to, you know, we go to as many games as we can, which is most of them now. Mm-hmm. And when they built the new stadium, and yeah. it's just amazing. But as you know, because of COVID, no one could go the first season. Yeah. But the season following, our first season in the new stadium was just, I, I cannot explain it to you. It's, it's, it's. I don't want to say it's like being in heaven, but it's like being in heaven. You know, we had seats basically on the 40-yard line, halfway up. It's an amazing stadium, and they went and won the Super Bowl. I mean, what more could you ask for? Incredible ride. So I've always been from the late 60s L.A. sports teams. I've I've been a pretty big sports fan, but like I say, when I got focused on music, I kind of pushed them aside. Um, but I've stuck with the Rams, even when they moved to St. Louis and have come back to L.A. So that that's my, again, my long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Do you have a favorite uh, Rams player when you were growing up? When I was growing up, probably not a favorite for the Rams. I had a favorite for foot, for a basketball, of course, a Lakers fan, and it was Wilt Chamberlain. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he wasn't here that long, and it was towards the end of his career. But there's just something about the guy that was pretty amazing. I didn't like his life off the court, but okay, that's his It was life. fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, just everything about him was just amazing. So he was my, my uh, basketball hero. And in baseball, because we were born in Baltimore, mm-hmm. it was Frank Frank Robinson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was... Just amazing. And he actually played for the Dodgers uh, maybe a season or two, again, towards the end of his career. Mm -hmm. Um, But I always looked up to him and he was he was my hero in baseball. But, you know, that's interesting in football. I couldn't pick out a Ram that was uh, that had that type of a feeling for me uh, at that time. You know, there were many, you know, Roman Gabriel, Lawrence uh, McCutcheon running back. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. But no no one, whether it was uh again the Merlin Olson and yeah. uh yeah, I could name many, but it wasn't any any particular one. Yeah. Gotcha. Not a and later on, not a big uh, or Eric Dickerson or you know. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I what what's bothered me a little bit in sports is the free agency and not the player side of it, but right. You know, because I'm all for them making what they what they deserved. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. you know, breaking up teams so much is it's difficult for me to stick with the teams the way it used to be in the sure. 60s and 70s when, you know, pretty much you played for a one team for most of your career. But I mean, now it could be three or four teams you end yeah. up playing with like LeBron. You know, he's yeah. been was it Lakers is his third team or, or something like that. It's his third team, but he, he had two go-arounds with Cleveland. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, it's all fine. It's just, I, I 
<laughs> I like to stick with players, and that's that's a thing you can't do in football anymore either. Because oh, yeah. once oh, yeah. their rookie contract is up, if they give them a contract, and that's up in a few years, and then they're off, and they've got to shuffle. and And that's one of the reasons why the Rams were successful. They played that puzzle just yeah. right that season, and they got all all the things fell into the place the right time. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, what was it like seeing Wilt? Too, I was too young. I, I wouldn't have wasn't alive yet. So what was it like to see him? Yeah, it it was amazing. It, he could do whatever he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. That's my opinion. Yeah. Uh, if he wanted to <clears throat> score a lot of points, if he wanted to rebound a lot, or if he wanted to make a huge difference, he could. But the problem that I had is that again, towards the end of his career, you know, it's like he'd been there, he'd done that, he'd won. Or not one, but he'd accomplished all of those. He was, you know, number one scorer, number one, et cetera, all those things. So the thing that he didn't achieve is all those championships, you right. know, which he got one in L.A. And that unfortunately, that's all they could do. So yeah. looking at him was fantastic. But, you know, I, I wish I'd seen him or been a little bit older when he was in his prime, yeah. you know, when he was really dominating and he was really into it. Yeah. I think he he lost his focus later, which is to me is understandable because yeah. they keep yeah. paying this, throwing this money at him, so he keeps playing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, a couple more. Where is somewhere that you have not traveled to that you still want to get to? Well, the obvious would be West Africa. I'd love to go there and experience the drumming in person the culture in person, you know, because, you know, the drumming that we speak about and Mama Day always made a point to address this. This is not what's done in the culture. It's always drumming with singing, with dancing. They all go together. Typically, you don't have one of those without the other. So I'd like to experience that. So West Africa is uh, near the top of my list of where I'd like to go. Other question what is your biggest kitchen mess up? Man, well, thanks to my wife, I <laughs> I don't have to be in the kitchen that much anymore. <laughs> what is my biggest? You're, you're stumping me with things like this. <laughs> I must have burnt something at some time. I, I got, got distracted. I was practicing in the other room and forgot. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. We'll just say it's that when I smelled something and it was like, oh, my God. <laughs> but that hasn't it's it's been a long time because thank goodness my wife takes care of that and sees yeah. to it that I don't mess up the kitchen too much. <laughs> I got you. Oh, that's that's great. The last couple strangest, funniest, or most bizarre performance moment that involves you. One that I I would I would mention is at the Hollywood Bowl. We weren't playing at the time, it was uh intermission. You know, before the second half start, I'd come out and, you know, make sure everything's set up and the music's all in the right place. And, yeah, as you know, in an orchestra, typically right in front of the percussion, typically is the horn section mm-hmm. uh, and then the woodwinds in front of them. So right in front of me is the the chairs for the horn players. And again, they weren't sitting there yet because uh, it was in a mission, but I'd come back early. But I noticed this stream of liquid coming down onto a chair in front of me i'm like wow <laughs> look up and there's a damn raccoon taking a leak you know, <laughs> on stage up in the rafters just you know had to relieve himself so 
<laughs> that was memorable. Uh, uh, also, not the same night, but also I can remember another time when we're doing whatever at the bowl, and it's t- it's always a quiet moment. Yeah, of course. And you know, at percussionists, we're sitting there, not playing. We're on our stool, so we can see over the orchestra and the 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 audience. Mm-hmm. And the lower section of the of the bowl is box seats, mm-hmm. and there's just this disturbance going on. People getting up, and you hear them, you know, some soft chatter or whatever. So you know. It comes to find out a skunk had run through the boxes. Oh my goodness! And kind of, of course, being, prof- being professional as we are, we kept playing, and you know, nothing, <laughs> nothing happened. Which reminds me of probably the most consequential thing that happened in L.A. at a concert at Walt Disney Hall was I'll never forget. This it was the second half. It was the complete Daphnis and Chloe. Mm-hmm. Beautiful piece, most amazing, but as probably most your viewers know, I hope, it starts very soft and it gradually builds. So we're in that moment. I, As I recall, Simon Rattle, Sir Simon Rattle was conducting. And then all of a sudden, the stage, the lights, the whole hall starts shaking. It's an L.A. earthquake. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. But, you know, again, being professional as we are, it was just one of those L.A. quakes. It was not, thank goodness. <laughs> so we just kept playing and you know, it subsided. And, you know, the audience, there was a little bit of talk. You could hear them. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. But they settled back down when they saw us. You know, we were just playing and we finished the concert. Oh, <laughs> That's probably the most monumental as God was speaking. You know, <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't get any stronger than that. Nothing's more <laughs> consequential than that. So <laughs> that's awesome. So I have one final question, but I remembered the one I was going to ask you, which is have you met other Rainers? Nope. As I recall, I know that it's more common in the last name, but I still haven't met anyone. Oh, with- I got you. Yeah. Yeah, having Raynor as a last name. So, but I've never met anyone that has it as their first name. Nope, not yet. It'll it'll happen eventually. I think. Yeah. yeah. Do do people if they see if they see your name, you know, like last name first, they just assume they just ignore the comma. Does that happen yes. a lot? Yes. Yes, absolutely. I get a lot of Carols. Carol Raynor. Um, that's that's okay. Nope. You know, yeah. I'm used to it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what is there? Is there a way your first name gets gets butchered like more often than than not? Well, I, I you know the polite answer is no, you know? <laughs> but you know it's it's more often said R A Y N E R with an emphasis on the E Rainer Rainer. You know. Oh, I got yes. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not. It's 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 okay. It's yeah. I I don't you know because. If I was 10 years old, I'd make a big stand. Of course, but yes. Because it's it's all gone. It's like done. You know, it's no big deal. Call yeah. me whatever you want. You know. <laughs> I didn't know if you got like uh, like Raymond or something like that. Just be like, oh yeah. Quick. Yeah. Yeah. I've gotten that too. But it, it's okay. It's okay. That's not a big deal for me. I got gotcha. you. Know? <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Rainer, last question. Uh one piece of art. It could be any genre, movies, books, podcasts, YouTube clips, theater, visual art, poetry, anything has impacted you the most recently. 
You gave me too many to select from. Oh, you don't have to pick any, all of them. I'm just trying to. No, I'm saying I'm, I'm going through that oh. list. So the bottom line is that has affected me or yes. had an impact on me. Any one. I can think of um, recently this past summer, I was in D.C., playing with the National Symphony, and I went to see the Martin Luther King commemorative statue, or what? what is the technical term for that? Uh, geez. The one that's in the, in the park? Yes. Yeah. I know. Well, yeah. yeah, I went to see that, and that was extremely moving to me, to see him cut out in stone and a, such a huge figure there with you know right down the path abraham lincoln the washington memorial i guess it's a memorial the a, yeah. a martin luther king memorial uh etc with the president that that was very moving and i would say equally if not more is the the museum that we have, the National African American Museum of History and Culture, just going through that in its totality. And it's uh, my, as I recall, it's like seven levels, mm -hmm. starting with the basement, which is pre-slavery and slavery, and then the next level up. It's a, it's, it's a very, it was a very moving, impactful experience for myself and my wife as we went through that. And you cannot take it all in in one day but still just the depth there of our history and what it means to america or what it doesn't mean to america and what we've done or what we haven't done the accomplishments or whatever it's very that was very impactful so i would say that whole experience of being in dc mlk uh, memorial and the african-american natural natural Sorry, an African American History and Cultural Museum was just an amazing experience in itself. So, thank you for asking that. Absolutely, and thank you, Rainer. We are done. I'm sorry to hear that. It's been a it's been my pleasure sharing with you, and you know, it makes me think we need to sit down together and have a drink or two and continue, and you know. Just get to know each other even more. I mean, it's be my turn to ask you about your history and <laughs> what you've gotten through, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm so glad you asked me to do this. And uh, my pleasure. Absolutely. This was, uh, was total joy. And I'm, I was so thrilled when you wrote back that you were up for it. That Absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. It, it was even better. I'm Great. From my end, so. I'm glad. I'm glad. As I may have already mentioned here, I was honestly shocked to get the chance to chat with Rainer on this show, and so excited. And as you can tell, he's a great storyteller and has an amazing backstory and an enormous amount of experience and experiences. He made it great. Thank you again, Rainer. I look forward to chatting with him in person at some point in the future, maybe the next PASIC. Stay tuned. This week's rave, while somehow also timed decently, though unexpectedly, to this currently being Christian Holy Week, is the 1997 film The Apostle, 
with Farrah Fawcett, Miranda Richardson, Walter Goggins, and Billy Bob Thornton, among many others, and starring, produced, written, and directed by Robert Duvall, now available in various streaming locations. I'd caught this film when it came out, but hadn't had a chance to watch it since, and it is still a very, very good movie. The general plot is that Robert Duvall plays a lifelong preacher from Texas whose personal and professional life spirals out of hand, and he flees town and moves to a very rural part of Louisiana, renovates an old church, and starts up a new congregation and a new life. The backstory for the film is incredibly fascinating. Ever since Robert Duvall had won his only acting Oscar for the film Tender Mercies in 1983, He'd been trying to get this film about this Pentecostal preacher made. No one wanted to make the movie with him. So it would, after many, many years, eventually lead to him shelling out his own money to finance, write, direct, and star in the film. Part of what makes this movie work is the usage of not only non-actors in many of the roles, but actual Southern preachers who end up preaching in the movie. There's a scene in the film where, after one particular preacher, among a group of many, who is an actual Pentecostal preacher, becomes enraptured with the Holy Spirit during a service, is seen later on working to return back to normal, i.e. running and hopping and attempting to calm down many minutes later. It's fascinating stuff you don't normally get to see. The acting, done by Billy Bob Thornton and Walter Goggins in small supporting roles, is very good, as is the work done by Miranda Richardson as Duval's love interest later in the film. It's also a great role for Farrah Fawcett as Duval's ex-wife, who, while not always given great parts, was an exceptional actor. But this is far and away Robert Duval's show. He was embedded with many different preachers in writing the film and grew up amongst them and got the story and many characters just right. He stayed local with all of the talent and keeps the film's pace moving and interesting. And his performance, though it was nominated but didn't win Best Actor, is to me his best by a lot. He not only taps into the preacher's Pentecostal cadence, but also showcases how full and frustrating it can be to interact with someone as he plays in the film who has his entire worldview cast with religious life and symbolism. From beginning to end, he's able to find a calling for both his best and worst impulses and completely inhabits the character in incredible ways. It's an unreal performance in a very good film that is compelling and well worth your time. If you haven't seen it, or as in my case, it had been a while, check out The Apostle. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete's at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time. Until then. Thank you.